I'd like to thank ExpressVPN for supporting my podcast. If you believe that your data is your business, then secure yourself. ExpressVPN will secure your privacy and protect your information. Visit expressvpn.com gold and you can get an extra three months off of a one-year subscription package. Well, I'm recording this podcast at around noon Switzerland time. So it's just after 6 a.m. back in New York. So we still have quite a long time before the U.S. market opens after an extended three-day holiday weekend. You know, one of the things I'm looking at is the price of gold, which is now after two days up about $20 an ounce, back above $1,800. 1807-ish is the price I'm looking at right now. But the bigger move is coming in the oil market, which a few hours earlier this morning was almost at $77 per barrel. The high I saw was $76.98. As I'm recording now, it's more about $76.50. So, back a little bit off that high, maybe a little resistance at around the even number of $77 a barrel. But $76.90 was the high from October 2018, I think, around then. But after taking out that high, $76.98, that's the highest we've paid for a barrel of Wex Texas crude since November of 2014. So you're almost looking at a seven-year high in the price of crude oil. Although now that we have taken out that 2018 high, I wouldn't be surprised if we got a little profit-taking, but nothing that's going to disturb this bull market. But again, what's more important than these new highs is look how powerful this chart is. I've been talking about the oil move for a year now on this podcast, and we're not overbought. We haven't had any real big spikes. It's just a slow and steady advance without any real meaningful declines because you have tremendous demand and not enough supply that is driving the oil price. Yes, there's some news that OPEC has decided to call off whatever uh, meeting it was supposed to have. And so that has created a catalyst for new buying. But there's really nothing out of the ordinary about today's move. It's just one in a number of upward moves that we've had in this oil bull market. But you know, I think more important than the price of oil in US dollars, I think is the price of oil in euros. Because if you remember, the record high for oil in dollars was way up at around $145 a barrel. That was in mid-2008 just before the financial crisis sent oil prices plunging. So we still need to rise, I don't know, about 90% from where we are now to get back up to 145 in the price of oil. But if you look at it in terms of euros, we only need to rise about 37% from here in order to get to a new record high for oil priced in euros, which is about 89 euros per barrel of oil. The reason that the euro price of oil didn't get nearly as high as it did in dollars was because in 2008, the dollar was very, very weak. The euro almost got up to 160 versus the dollar. Right now, we're not even quite at 119. 
So the strength of the euro took some of the sting out of that high oil price that Americans were experiencing back in 2008. But why I think this euro oil price is significant is because I think we could be hitting all-time record highs for the price of oil in euros as soon as this year. But if we don't make it this year, then I think we will do it early next year. And so what does that mean for monetary policy in Europe, which is actually looser than it is in the U.S. I mean, we've got interest rates between zero and 25 basis points. They've actually got rates between zero and negative 50 basis points if you look at the various policy rates from the ECB. So they have ultra low interest rates. Now, how are they going to justify that type of monetary policy when you have record high oil prices and no end in sight? I mean, clearly the bankers over at the Bundesbank are going to exert some kind of pressure on the ECB. They're not going to sit back and allow the euro's purchasing power to erode to that degree. And it's going to be very hard for the ECB to pretend that there's not enough inflation in the eurozone when oil prices are at record highs. And of course, it's not just going to be oil prices that are going up. It's going to be the price of a lot of other things that are also going to go up. And ultimately, I think that a rising oil price and increasing inflationary pressures throughout the eurozone are actually going to push the ECB into raising interest rates before the Fed gets around to it. And so I don't think anybody is really factoring in this type of interest rate divergence into their currency forecasts. But it's the eurozone that is more likely to attempt to fight inflation because I think they're in better shape to withstand the battle. Of course, it's not going to be easy, but I don't necessarily think the Bundesbank is going to give them a choice. In the U.S., we will have a choice. There's going to be nobody pushing the Fed to fight inflation when we still have a lot of unemployed people and we still have all this government stimulus uh, that needs financing, it needs monetization. But that has major implications, not only for the value of the dollar, which will clearly fall relative to the euro and other currencies when the ECB starts increasing interest rates, but that will actually put even more upward pressure on the dollar price of oil Because as the dollar falls against the euro, it also means that more dollars are required to buy a barrel of oil. And so once we see record highs in the euro price of oil, it's not going to be too long before we also see record highs in the U.S. dollar price of oil. But of course, inflation is rearing its ugly head in lots of places, not just in the oil market. In fact, I was reading this article over the weekend on Zero Hedge about restaurants in Chicago and how they are passing on their higher operating costs to their customers with all sorts of increased fees that are probably not even being captured in the CPI. And the CPI certainly is showing that the cost of eating in restaurants is going up, but it's really not even beginning to capture just how much more expensive dining out has actually become post-COVID and post all the money printing that was a result of COVID. So one of the points that this article was making regarding these Chicago restaurants is that many of the restaurants had imposed 
cancellation fees on your reservation. Right? So if you book a reservation and then you want to cancel it or you don't show up, they're charging the credit card $100. Now, most restaurants probably didn't have that type of policy. You can make a reservation. You can cancel. If you don't show up, it's usually okay. But not in today's world where you have to dramatically reduce the capacity. You don't have as many tables that you're able to reserve. So you have to make sure that if somebody does make a reservation, that they honor it. And so a $100 cancellation fee, that seems pretty big if there used to be no cancellation fee. And I don't think there's any way that the CPI would capture such a fee that didn't even exist in the past and now exists now. And another fee that I think is similar is minimums. There was a restaurant that they were focusing on in this article, and I don't think it's just one restaurant. I think it's kind of common for other restaurants in in Chicago, but this restaurant had imposed a per diner minimum of $100. So if you're going to go to the restaurant, let's say with your wife and your two kids, you have to spend at least $400 on your meal. And if you don't spend $400, if you only spend $300, well, they're just going to tack on an extra $100. So that is not necessarily a price increase because it's not reflected in the price of any item on the menu, although they probably did raise the prices for the menu items. But when you just impose a $100 minimum per diner, when no minimum existed before, the CPI has no way of picking that up. Now, what happens is diners are now going to have to order more food or more alcohol than they might otherwise have ordered, or they're simply going to get billed a supplement because they didn't spend enough money. All of that increases the cost of eating in a restaurant, but none of that is going to get captured in the CPI. Basically, what these restaurants are doing is they're finding ways to raise prices without officially raising prices by just imposing these new fees. But that's also helping out the government. While they're trying to disguise the price increases from their customers, they're also helping the government disguise those price increases from the public because this increase in the cost of eating in restaurants is not showing up in the CPI because of the way the price increases are being introduced into the experience. You know, another article too that I was reading on Zero Hedge that really highlights again the massive amount of inflation that is in this economy is the big backlog of containers that are building up there in China. It's record amount of backed up containers waiting to be shipped out and also merchandise waiting for empty containers which are not available. And so they don't even have a way of shipping the merchandise because they don't have the containers and they don't have enough ships in order to load the containers on. And what the real problem is It's not a shortage of capacity, a shortage of ships and containers. It's a surplus of U.S. dollars that now Americans have to buy up all this stuff that doesn't exist. There isn't the capacity to produce it. We don't have the shipping capacity to transport it. So what has to happen? Prices need to go way up because we need to rebalance supply and demand because the government created all this new demand by giving everybody a bunch of money. 
but that doesn't do anything to change the capacity in the economy to produce the stuff or to transport the stuff. So what has to happen now is price has to adjust. The market has to discover a new price given the much higher demand and what the limits are on the capacity uh, to produce and to ship. And so prices are going way, way higher. That is the only way that we are going to clear this huge backlog in merchandise is with much, much higher prices. And of course, what's going to happen as the cost of shipping merchandise from China to America really goes up, a lot more of the stuff that's being produced in China might end up being consumed in China instead because if you're going to sell the merchandise in China, well, you don't have to cover all the cost of the round-trip shipment. You don't have to send the goods to the U.S. and then pay to bring back the empty containers. You might as well just sell the goods to Chinese consumers who are already there and you don't have those costs. So Americans are going to have to face more competition from local consumers for the Chinese merchandise that they want to buy, and prices are going to be going way, way up. This is not transitory. This is just the beginning of an explosive move up in consumer prices, and one that the Fed has no ability to contain because it's put himself in a position where it can't do it, so it is going to tolerate any amount of inflation. And in fact, even when it comes to oil prices, the Fed is going to repeat the same mistakes that they repeated early on during the 1970s. Because the way the Federal Reserve reacted to higher oil prices back then is they looked at oil prices being a drag on the economy. Hey, consumers were spending more money for oil, so they're not going to have money to buy other things. We better stimulate the economy. We better print up more money so the consumers have more money so they can afford the higher oil prices and they can keep buying other stuff. And all that did was add fuel to the fire, you know, until Paul Volcker finally came along and did the right thing. Well, there is no Paul Volcker anywhere on horizon. Nobody's going to come around and do the right thing, but I'm confident that They are going to continue to do the wrong thing. And yes, the Federal Reserve may well look at a big increase in oil prices as a tax increase. And the Fed will look to offset the negative effects on the economy, the sedative effects on the economy of a increase in taxes with an offsetting monetary stimulus in the form of even more money printing, which again will simply fuel the fire that is causing oil prices to rise in the first place. I want to change gears though and talk a little bit about some of the reactions to a previous podcast that I did. It was number 709, Government Protected Monopolies Are the Ones to Fear. And I wanted to address some of the points that were made in the comments section of the podcast. And, you know, I do read the comments both on Shift Radio and on YouTube, which is another reason why you should make the comments. I mean, even if I don't respond to them all and I can't, I do look through them and obviously keep it short and sweet. When the comments are really long, I just kind of skip them because I don't have that much time. So try to condense your comment into as few words as possible. And that way I'm more likely to read it. But also, of course, don't just comment on my podcast or my videos. Like it, give it the thumbs up, because I think the more positive feedback the audience leaves, the more likely it is that other people end up listening to this podcast 
because I think the algorithms that make the podcasts available or on YouTube, they take into account all that feedback. So if it sees a lot of comments and a lot of likes or thumbs up or whatever it is, then I think it's more likely that in other people's search feeds, they're more likely to see or be directed to this podcast. But anyway, a lot of the comments were along the lines of, hey, I'm overlooking a big factor when it comes to a Facebook or a Google, because I was focusing on the fact that they weren't monopolies from the perspective of pricing. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. After all, Facebook is giving away their content. Nobody has to pay to have a Facebook page. It's all free. And so clearly they're not gouging anybody if it's free. And if you're looking at the advertisers as the real customers, as opposed to the individuals who have uh, Facebook pages, well, the advertisers clearly have lots of other places that they can advertise. Facebook or Google are in competition with all sorts of other websites and all sorts of traditional advertisers. So there's no way that you could say that any of these internet giants somehow has cornered the market on advertising and are therefore monopolies. But what people were pointing out was the monopoly power that they may exercise when it comes to their influence politically, that they're so big and they don't really have a lot of other viable competitors online that when they have a particular political agenda, they could really advance that agenda. They could try to silence any opposition to that agenda and really alter the political landscape, maybe actually rig the outcome of elections or interfere with elections based on all this power they have online. And therefore, from a political perspective, we need to break them up because they exercise too much political power. And I'm not even sure that you could justify that based on you know the Clayton Antitrust Act or the Sherman Act. I don't even think that politics even played into this antitrust legislation. But the reason I wanted to focus on it is because here again, this is not a problem that is a byproduct of capitalism or the free market. This particular problem where these social media giants have all this political power is, again, a function of U.S. government. Because what happened early on with the Internet, you had these big companies and they took the position with the government that what they were actually doing was providing the public with the virtual equivalent of a town square where people could gather and speak freely and express their opinion and In order to allow for the free expression of opinion and ideas, the companies told Congress, hey, we don't want to have to police or censor what people are saying or what they're posting. 
And if we have to censor what they're posting, it's going to have a chilling effect on this freedom of expression. And so what we need is protection from liability. We don't want to be held liable for what somebody may post or say on social media. We don't want to be able to be sued for defamation or something like that because somebody says something and it's not true and it causes somebody else to lose money or to just suffer in some other way. But we don't want to be held accountable for that because if we do, then we have to carefully monitor each and every post, every video that gets posted, every audio clip. It's going to take forever. It's going to cost a fortune. And it's really going to you know, have a chilling effect on this new media, this virtual town square. And we want to encourage this free exchange of ideas. And the government bought it. Yes, this makes sense. Let's not force all these social media companies to take on that responsibility. I mean, after all, other media outlets have that responsibility. If you have a newspaper, if you have a magazine, you are responsible for everything that is written. But of course, there it's very easy. You got a magazine, maybe it's 100, 200 pages. You know, most of that's going to be advertisements, but you have the articles that have been written. It's very easy to fact check them, to go over them. You know exactly what's there and you make sure that you're not saying something that is opening you up to a defamation lawsuit. And when it comes to freedom of the press in America, it's a pretty high bar for somebody to come and sue uh, for defamation, especially if the person is a public figure or something like that, then the bar is even higher. But still, all of these traditional publications were responsible for all of their content. But of course, you take something like a Facebook where you've got hundreds of millions or billions of Facebook accounts. And who knows what these guys are posting? It's much more difficult, right, for Facebook to go and look at every single account and every single post and then fact check it and make sure it's all accurate. So basically they said, look, we don't want to have to do that. So we want to be exempt from all these laws. Okay, I agree with that, except it's now obvious that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and all these networks are in fact already policing all of the content on their site. They are taking away content that they find objectionable. If they think it is offensive to certain people, well, then they get rid of it. Or they have ways of manipulating the search engines within their platforms so that the videos or audio clips or whatever it is, or the tweets that advance a particular political perspective or agenda that they believe in, they find a way of elevating those. And then they have a way of burying the posts that express ideas that they disagree with. And so they're already doing what they promised Congress they would not do in order to get this exemption. So if you want to break up the power of these social media companies, all we need to do is remove the special protection that Congress granted to these companies and change it so that the only way that you get this protection, because I do think that some websites should enjoy that protection, because I still believe in their original argument as to why they needed it, even though 
as they're currently organized, they shouldn't get it. But if you actually are going to have a social media site that doesn't do anything to impose your own perspective or your own opinion, you really are providing a virtual town square where anything goes and you let people put up anything that they want without any attempt to regulate it or interfere with it based on politics. Obviously, there are certain things that you can't do. If somebody is up there advocating violence, then obviously you have to stop that. But just expressions of ideas and thoughts, if you have one that you do not do anything to try to influence how those posts are organized within your site, so you're not trying to rig the deck to favor any one perspective over another, it really is truly a virtual town hall, then I think that type of protection from litigation is viable. But if you're going to highly censor your platform based on your political ideology to try to create or push a particular agenda and use your social media site in a way that helps advance your own agenda, which I think is fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with them doing that, but they can't also do that and then enjoy this special protection against lawsuits. So once you've decided to do this, you have to lose that protection. And now you have to incur the liability. So now you do have to go and check every single post, every single account, and make sure that everything is factually accurate and nobody is being defamed. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself on the end of countless lawsuits. And what this will do, it will either force these companies to abandon these policies or so drive up their costs that it will make it easier for other social media companies who don't censor the content to that degree, who don't have political agendas that they want to advance, who simply want to be internet town halls, they will be at a competitive advantage and therefore there'll be lots more competition. So the reason that you see the problem is because government has given these companies something special in the law that other companies don't have. So again, it's the government that is creating the problem, and the solution is simply to remove what government has inserted into this equation, which is the special protection for these websites. So we don't need government to break them up. Two wrongs don't make a right. Let's just undo the original wrong and then let the free market make it right. Did you ever read the fine print that appears when you start browsing in incognito mode? It says that your activity may still be visible to your employer, your school, or your internet service provider. How can they call it incognito? To really stop people from seeing the sites you visit, you need to do what I do and use ExpressVPN. Just think about all the times you're using somebody else's Wi-Fi. You're at a coffee shop, you've checked into a hotel. If you're not using ExpressVPN, every site you visit could be logged by the administrator of that network. And that's true even if you're using incognito mode. What's more, your home internet service provider can also see and record all of your browsing data. And in the U.S., they're legally allowed to sell that data to advertisers or, more importantly, they may turn it over to governments. 
ExpressVPN is an app that encrypts all of your network data and then routes it through a network of secure servers so that your private online activity stays private. ExpressVPN works on all your devices and it's super easy to use. The app literally has one button, you tap it to connect, and your browsing activity is as secure as possible. In fact, an added benefit of using ExpressVPN is that you can access content that may not be available to you in the location that you're browsing. This is particularly helpful to me now. I am spending a month in Switzerland, and if I had to browse without my VPN, a lot of the sites that I need to visit to do my banking or sites that I use for entertainment, these sites are simply not accessible to me from this location. But when I fire up my VPN, as far as those other websites are concerned, I'm still in the US, so I have all the access to the same data that I had when I was back home, even though I'm browsing from Switzerland. So stop letting strangers invade your online privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com gold. Use my link at expressvpn.com gold and get three months free. That's expressvpn, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com gold to learn more. I want to finish up today's podcast, though, by talking about the 4th of July. And, you know, over the years, I've done several podcasts that were dedicated to Independence Day and talking about the significance of that date and what it really meant for America and for Americans. In fact, last Independence Day, I posted a remix of several other podcasts that I had done, and I kind of combined them into one our podcast called Peter Schiff's Independence Day Remix. And I did tweet out a link and post on my Facebook page on the 4th of July on Sunday, the link to this podcast, hoping that people who hadn't heard it before would listen to it. And judging by the new amount of views and looking at the comments, not that many people who didn't already listen to it, listen to it on Sunday. So if you are relatively new uh, to my podcast and you haven't heard any of my Independence Day podcasts, I really encourage you to listen to this one, Peter Schiff's Independence Day Remix. In fact, it also contains in its entirety my podcast, What It Means to Be an American, which a lot of people think is the best podcast I've ever recorded. So you don't want to miss the best one I've I've done. So Go out of your way after you finish listening to today's podcast. If you haven't already done it, go listen to Peter Schiff's Independence Day Remix and then share it with a friend. But my discussion on Independence Day today is going to be a little bit different from the discussions I've had in the past. Because what's really irritating me about the way a lot of people responded or reacted to Independence Day. This is particularly in the African-American community and especially elected officials, members of Congress who also happen to be African-American, really trying to diminish the significance of Independence Day and claiming that, well, we really shouldn't be celebrating the 4th of July because after all, not everybody was free. Not everybody got their independence on July 4th, 1776, because we had slaves. And yes, we had slaves. Of course, 
We can't ignore the fact that we had slavery in America in 1776. There was slavery all over the world. I mean, not every single country had it, but it was a global thing. America didn't invent slavery. Slavery was widespread in 1776. So we have to appreciate that and appreciate the Declaration of Independence in the context of the era in which that document was signed. I mean, was it perfect? No. Would it have been better if the Declaration of Independence also came out against slavery? Yes, it would have. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration, his very first draft included language that condemned slavery. But unfortunately, in order for the 13 colonies to all agree on a single document declaring independence, the North needed the cooperation of the South. And the South was not willing to condemn an institution that at the time they were relying on. So in order to gain the support of the Southern states, that language was dropped from the final version of the Declaration of Independence. Yes, it would have been great if we could have ended slavery in 1776, but we didn't do it. But that does not tarnish what was accomplished on that summer day in Philadelphia in 1776. And all Americans need to honor what our founding fathers achieved, even the descendants of slaves, because even if the freedoms that were laid out first in the Declaration of Independence and then later in the Constitution, even if they didn't apply to all Americans because some Americans were slaves, They apply to all Americans now, or at least they should, or they did until the government started whittling away at our constitutional rights. And everybody is losing rights. Everybody's freedoms have been diminished. Descendants of slaves and descendants of slave owners, or the vast majority of people who were neither slaves nor slave owners, because only a small portion of Americans actually were rich enough to even own slaves, But we all are suffering equally from the diminishment of our individual freedoms and liberties that were initially part of our birthright from the Declaration of Independence. But what I want to do is put slavery and America in its proper context, because it seems to me that the left really wants to go out of its way to make America particularly responsible for slavery, as if we were the worst offender when it comes to slavery. And slavery existed for thousands of years before America came on the scene. It's not like it just started with the American colonies. I mean, slavery goes back for thousands and thousands of years. The Egyptians had slaves. The Romans had slaves. I'm not saying it was right. I'm just saying it was there. And it was generally accepted as abhorrent as we all find slavery today, that wasn't the case for thousands of years. It was the norm. In fact, take a look at the Bible. Not that I'm that religious a person, but I know that the Bible is replete with references to slavery and slaves, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Although in the New Testament, I think they mainly refer to slaves as being servants. But by servants, they meant slaves. They didn't mean like people that you paid money as a hired servant. They meant slaves. And it's interesting because with all the references throughout the Bible to slavery and slaves, nowhere in the Bible is slavery condemned. Nowhere do they say it's immoral, it's a sin against God. It's just there. It's just part of the Bible. So slavery was around for a long time. 
before the United States got involved with it. But of course, I want to focus on slavery in the modern era, because that's what everybody is talking about now. When people talk about slavery, they're not talking about the Israelites that were in bondage, you know, uh, under Pharaoh, right? They're talking about African slaves that we had here in the United States. And so the African slave trade really began, if you want to go back to the very beginning, it was around 1450, something like that. And it started when the Portuguese bought slaves from Africa and they brought them back to Europe. Now, you got to remember, and this is something that a lot of people forget, it's not like the Portuguese just arrived in Africa and just went out and captured a bunch of free Africans and enslaved them. The slaves that they purchased were already slaves in Africa. Other Africans were enslaving Africans. They were different tribes. You had these warring tribes, and when one tribe won the war, they would take as slaves their captured enemies. And so what happened was the Portuguese arrived down there in Africa, and the Africans want to trade with the Portuguese, and what did they have to trade? Slaves. So the Portuguese took those slaves in exchange for whatever they gave the African kings who owned them. And so that's how it started. Then the Spanish got involved in about 1525. They started buying up these African slaves in Africa, and they were bringing them to the Americas. They didn't bring any slaves to the American colonies until 1619, Jamestown, right? That was the original American colony, and the first slaves arrived there in 1619. So what is that? Like 150 years after the slave trade began, with the Portuguese buying African slaves, 150 years later, now there's some slaves in the American colonies. But it really didn't start picking up in the colonies until the 1700s. There wasn't a lot of activity prior to that. But between 1700 and 1780, it really began to you know, get bigger and bigger. In fact, the peak of the slave trade in the colonies was around 1740 to 1780. Right? So this is really what, about 300 years after it started. Now, the African slave trade didn't really end until about 1888. Right, That is when Brazil finally ended slavery. So during that time period, from whatever, 1450 up to about 1888, something like 10 to 12 million Africans were traded as slaves. In fact, the last country to eliminate slavery was Mauritania, which is a country in northern Africa. And believe it or not, they didn't get around to officially outlawing slavery until 2007. But the reality of this slave trade is that it started and ended in Africa. But what a lot of people don't seem to appreciate or they don't want to admit is America's role in ending the slave trade that started in Africa, because America was really on the cutting edge of abolishing slavery. So yes, slavery was bad, and America had slavery, but America took the lead in abolishing slavery. And so many people minimize or completely dismiss the significance of America's contribution to ending slavery. See, a lot of people want to talk about, oh, you know, the first country that ended slavery was Haiti, right? And I'm talking about, again, the African slave trade. Haiti abolished slavery in 1804, right? So they were the first ones to do it, 
right? Then after Haiti, Mexico. Mexico abolished slavery in 1829. And then Britain came on the scene and they abolished it in 1833. They were followed by France and Denmark in 1848, though Denmark actually banned the slave trade in 1807. It was actually the first European country to ban trading in slaves, but they didn't make slavery itself illegal until 1848. So everybody wants to look at all those countries and when they abolish slavery and say, hey, America, we didn't abolish slavery until 1865. So, you know, we were one of the last countries to abolish slavery. That's the way everybody is trying to rewrite history. Well, the reality is we weren't one of the last. We were actually the first. Because what people don't seem to remember is that America was a confederation of individual colonies, which became states. But even under the Constitution, which followed the Articles of Confederation, each state was like its own country. Most Americans, and this is prior to the Civil War, identified first as a citizen of their state and second as a citizen of the United States kind of the way Europeans view themselves today. Germans and Italians don't consider themselves to be living in the same country. If you run into a German, they're going to say, I'm from Germany. An Italian, I'm from Italy. They're European second, but they're German or they're Italian first. And that was the case with the United States. You were from Virginia, you were Virginian. You were from New York, you were a New Yorker. You were from Georgia, I live in Georgia, right? You are also American, but first and foremost, you were in your state. And so you have to look not just when did all of the U.S. states abolish slavery, but when did they start abolishing it? When was the first state to abolish slavery? And the first one was actually Vermont. Vermont, the colony of Vermont, abolished slavery in 1777. This is actually the first jurisdiction to abolish slavery in the modern era, talking about the African slave trade, 1777. This is even before the Articles of Confederation. And by the way, Vermont was not one of the original 13 colonies. It was not part of the Articles of Confederation. It did not become uh, part of the United States initially, so it was not a signatory to the Declaration of Independence. But Vermont was actually the first state admitted to the Union after the Union was established. So they were actually the 14th state. But they abolished slavery in 1777. The next place to abolish slavery was Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania abolished slavery in 1780. Again, Pennsylvania was its own colony. In fact, the Articles of Confederation weren't even adopted until 1781. But prior to its adoption, Pennsylvania already abolished slavery. Now, in 1783, Massachusetts abolished slavery. It still hasn't been abolished anywhere else in the world, anywhere in Europe. And now Massachusetts abolishes slavery. And then over the next several years, Slavery was abolished in the colonies of New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, all before the Constitution was ratified in 1788. So by the time the Constitution was ratified in 1788, five of the 13 colonies that became states had already outlawed slavery, plus Vermont, which was not part of the original 13, but which became a state, outlawed it. And again, remember, Haiti doesn't even outlaw slavery until 1804. This is 1788, 
and we have six U.S. states or one would-be state that have already outlawed slavery. Then 1799, New York abolishes slavery. 1802, Ohio abolishes slavery and became a state, I think, the following year in 1803. So by 1803, we now have eight states that have abolished slavery out of the 17 states that were states in 1803. Almost half. And they still haven't abolished it in Haiti. Haiti didn't get around to abolishing slavery until 1804. So America, way before Haiti and way before any of the European countries, we were abolishing slavery. We took the lead at abolishing slavery. Now, a lot of people want to diminish the significance of that because they want to say, hey, wait a minute, America didn't abolish slavery until 1865 with the 13th Amendment. That's when we abolished slavery in all of the states. But many of the states had already abolished slavery and they led the charge. Now, I'm not trying to diminish the contributions made, let's say, by Great Britain. They were very instrumental in bringing an end to slavery. But Americans did it first. And that is something that we could be proud of, that we were trailblazers in ending slavery. Yes, we participated in slavery. We came late to the game. We didn't start it. You know, we arrived on the scene later in African trade. And yes, we did indulge, partake in quite a bit of it. Uh, between 1740 and 1780. But then there also was a huge movement to end slavery, the abolitionist movement. Remember, it wasn't the Africans who were exporting the slaves. They didn't want to end slavery. They had a very lucrative business going on exporting slaves. It was like the biggest export coming out of Africa. So it wasn't like Africa wanted to stop exporting slaves. The Europeans and the Americans wanted to stop importing them. And once the demand for slaves went away because everybody had made it illegal, well, then Africa got rid of it too because there was no point then in taking slaves if they couldn't sell them for something because nobody would buy them because by that point, everybody had decided that slavery was wrong. But the first people to come to that decision and to enact the laws to make it illegal were in America. And for everybody that wants to criticize all of the founding fathers, right, because, oh, the founding fathers all like slavery, they didn't. I mean, most of the founding fathers hated slavery. They wrote against slavery. In fact, some of the most famous founding fathers who were anti-slavery also practiced what they preached. They did not own any slaves. Among these were John Adams, uh, who was our second president, Samuel Adams, Roger Sherman. You know, a fact about Roger Sherman, not a lot of people know, he's the only founding father to have signed all three of America's founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution. You have Alexander Hamilton against slavery, never had any slaves, first the Secretary of the Treasury. Thomas Paine, common sense, one of the heroes of the Revolution, also very much against slavery. But of course, there were a lot of founding fathers who owned slaves, but were still outspoken against slavery. Not maybe their entire lives, but certainly 
in their later lives. You have George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. I already said in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, he condemns slavery in very harsh language, despite the fact that he owned slaves. Benjamin Franklin, very anti-slavery, particularly in his later life. Yes, he owned slaves. He had two slaves, which, by the way, he did free during his lifetime. I think you know, it was later in life. Uh, but Ben Franklin, very much anti-slavery. John Jay, Patrick Henry, you know, give me liberty or give me death, anti-slavery. So was James Madison, fourth president of the United States and father of the Constitution. And John Hancock, right, the big signature on the Declaration of Independence. He was against slavery. The main proponents of slavery in the colonies were in the South. That's it. So there was a lot of anti-slavery sentiment that was shared by many of our founding fathers. So rather than throwing America under the bus and just trying to condemn us for having slavery, something that existed for thousands of years before America was into existence and something which existed all around the world at the same time that it existed in America, while we still can condemn the fact that slavery was wrong and we can all rejoice in the fact that it's over, we can also take pride in America's role in ending it instead of just blaming us for having slavery. How about crediting us for abolishing it? However, those facts just don't seem to fit into the political agenda, into the narrative of trying to show America in the worst possible light, particularly its founding. Because what the left really wants to do by harping on the fact that we had slaves is to discredit all of the good things that were done. Because after all, how can slave owners do anything good? Because what the left really doesn't like is the principles of liberty and freedom that were enshrined in the Constitution. But instead of attacking those principles outright, they want to attack the men who espouse them. This is the ad hominem type of attacks. So they want to vilify the founding fathers. And how do they vilify them? Well, because they own slaves. And because they owned slaves, they were bad people. And because they were bad people, everything that they did was bad. They were not bad people. They were good people. They were extremely good people. And the fact that some of them happened to own slaves does not diminish their greatness because you have to always look at everything in the context of the times. And we can't judge people by our own morality who might not have had that morality at the time. But we also need to appreciate the significance of the people who fought to end slavery at a time when slavery was so popular and so well accepted. And another factor that a lot of people always like to gloss over is the fact that we fought a civil war in part to end slavery. Now, the civil war may not have begun specifically to end slavery, but once the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863, the war really became about ending slavery, and the bloodiest part of the war happened after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. More Americans died in the Civil War, a war to end slavery, than Americans who died in all the other wars combined. World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Americans died. And I'm talking on both sides, right? On the Confederacy as well as the Union. But we spilled a lot of American blood to end slavery. No other nation did that. So we were the first to end slavery up north, 
Our northern states ended slavery before anybody in Europe, before anybody else in South America, and then to force the remaining southern states that had not yet gotten rid of slavery, we fought a bloody battle and paid to end slavery, not only with money, but with American blood. So people need to look back and honor all of the sacrifices, not just the specialness and the uniqueness about the experiment in self-government that began in Philadelphia on July 4th of 1776, but the sacrifice that Americans made to help bringing those ideals and those principles to everybody. First, by abolishing slavery, being the first to abolish slavery and to lead the world by example in the North and then sacrificing so many lives to make sure that the principles enshrined in the Constitution were applied all over the country, including the Southern states that had held out and had not yet ended slavery. So the next time, if you're on social media, you're on the internet, wherever it is, and people want to talk about how bad slavery was and how bad America was for having slavery, You can agree that slavery was bad, but you need to stick up for America and the role that America played in ending the slavery that Africa started. Not America, it was started in Africa. So we can be proud of our country, we can be proud of the 4th of July, and we can be proud of our efforts to expand the principles that were enshrined first in the Declaration of Independence and then in the Constitution to all Americans. And by the way, as I mentioned, when the Constitution was ratified, slavery had already been abolished in six states. So the blacks who were living free in America benefited from the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And so when you have these left-wing politicians coming out and saying, not everybody was free, we shouldn't celebrate this, you are basically diminishing the fact that there were a lot of free Africans living in America who enjoyed the same freedoms as the Europeans, the whites who were living in America. Yes, not all of the blacks who were in America enjoyed those freedoms, but some of them did. And what's important is the principles themselves, not the fact that not every American was able to benefit from them. What we did is we laid the foundation of principles from which ultimately all Americans were able to benefit from. And it's not just that the left doesn't like our founding principles. What they really want to do is recreate the country in a new socialist image. And in order to move the country radically to the left, they have to completely discredit the ideals upon which we are founded. Because in order to get people to reject those ideals and embrace these new ones, they first have to discredit all of the people who espouse those ideals. 